of you haven't been able to stick around for a Q&A. Jordan Lundquist has been hosting and moderating our Q&A. And then um, for some of you, you, the original plan, Pastor Eddie was planning on being with us but couldn't make it. And I called in a favor and invited one of my friends to come and join us on our Q&A panel so you just don't listen to me. Um, and that is uh, Dr. Matt Kimbrough. So, Dr. Matt, if you want to come join us on stage. Dr. Matt Kimbrough teaches Bible and theology at uh, BBC. He has a BA from SBU. I really thought that, like, somebody might whoop for you, but I guess they're not proud of their school. So, hey. Um, he's got a BA from SBU and MA from... Uh, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and then a THM and a PhD from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary um, in New Testament, right? So you've got a language guy and a historical theologian tonight, so we're going to try and tackle uh, the questions that you have. And we got Luda. He, he might tackle something. I don't know. He'll t- well, they are five and one. For those of you keeping score at home, the Chiefs are 5-1, and one, which goes back to my premise earlier. You can be 5-0, and oh, but if you go 5-11, and 11, nobody gives a rip about the 5-0 and oh part. So um, go ahead and begin to send in your questions. Um, for those of you who don't know Dr. Kimbrough, I'm going to do, maybe do a little bit here. And can you just tell us um, a little bit about yourself, how you came to know the Lord, and maybe some of your ministry experience up to this point? Sure. Hey, everybody. Uh, so I, I grew up in a pastor's household, so I feel like I've been aware of the Lord all my life. I was saved at, uh, we had these big passion plays, and I actually participated in these passion plays uh, around Easter time. And I remember uh, watching the, the Jesus guy. He had, um, uh, they, he didn't have long hair, so they bought these crimped extensions to put in his hair. Uh, but anyway, seeing that guy with his crimped extensions, nevertheless, that's how the Lord saved me, people. So, uh, uh, and so, but but watching him on that on the cross, uh, I remember thinking that was for me. And so, when the pastor came up uh, and confessed faith in Christ, um, we moved to Springfield, Missouri, when I was going into seventh grade. And I, the second church we ever went to was Spring Hill Baptist Church, uh, which is about ten minutes north of here. And I've been there ever since. I've been there over. Yeah, over 20 years at this point. Uh, I served on the pastoral staff at Spring Hill for 10 years doing uh, discipleship, uh, life groups, worship. Uh, and then I've been at BBC full time now. This is my second year. Yeah. Cool. And wife, kids. Yeah, I have a lovely wife over here, Emily. Uh, she's a PA at Mercy Hospital with the hospitalist. And then I've got two kiddos uh, Cohen is one year old, and Riley is four. She's just everything that we can handle in life. Cool deal. So uh, as you're saying in your text message, we want to make sure that you know that there's another option too. Uh, Landon Anderson has got the the wonderful handheld mic there. If you are so bold as to um, perhaps want to ask a question from the floor, we'll take those as well. Luda, how's it looking over there? Do we need to kill some more time or you got stuff for us? Okay, well. I guess we'll get after it. All right. So to kick off the night, we have had to confront someone who is struggling, um, struggling to understand God's love and God's family. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, these are two aspects of God. So we, we cannot simply squash one of them. That's always the wrong tactic to take, right? So obviously in our culture today, uh, love is, is great, it's trendy, it's easy, it sounds good to everyone, so everyone wants to go with love. Uh, and so the thing that we want to squash is wrath. Um, I think maybe another characteristic we want to bring in is the holiness of God. Uh, with holiness comes justice. So God is holy, that means God is, uh, is completely other, but God is also completely separate from sin. So he's, you know, uh, 
fanning into flame the consuming fire, which destroys you. Right? So I always thought that was a funny song. I let it. That's okay. Wow. So God is holy. When God comes into contact with sin, he, he consumes sin. Uh, we also know that God is just. And so since God is just, there is a punishment for sin. And that punishment can, in one word, be described as wrath. So we have these qualities of God. We have God's love. We have God's grace. We have God's wrath. How do we square those away? Paul's answer in Romans chapter 3 is the cross of Christ. That's where the grace and the love of God and the wrath of God come together in one. It's the wrath of God because Christ atones for sin. So he bears the penalty. He pays the price. He lives out and experiences the wrath of God. But at the same time, where wrath's God is revealed, God's love is also revealed in that he died for our wrath. So uh, when I counsel, when someone comes to me and they're struggling with wrath and love, uh, I take them to the cross because that's where they should be. And he died for them. And Christ did that for us. And for the person who may be not struggling, so let's just take it to that extreme as well. Uh, for me, I echo all of that. And I, I always want to remind people when we start to talk about the attributes of God, my students um, over the years of teaching at BBC, and then I would assume some here would know this, um, because I tend more towards historical theology, my counsel is always to remember that you can't pick the parts of God that you like and worship them only, and then not worship the parts of God that you don't like. Um, Augustine, an old dead guy, famously said, if we only worship the parts of God that we like or enjoy, in the end, it's not God that we worship, but ourselves. Um, another famous theologian said, if, if that's the attitude that you take, um, they look down a well thinking they're worshiping God only to see the reflection of their own face in the water reflecting at them. Um, and it's become self-worship at that point to say, I'm really all about God's love. I can affirm that. Um, the parts about God's wrath I really don't like. This is what leads liberal theologians to look at the cross and say divine child abuse um, because they fundamentally don't understand the love component that even is exhibited in the cross so I love Paul's line in Romans 3 so that God can be just show his wrath and the justifier So, if we're talking first century, first century documents, yeah. Uh, anybody here in my New Testament survey class? Not even yet. Please do. Okay. Uh, so we just talked about this. Uh, there's there's a lot of sources from even the first century. So we're talking time period here, right? First century A.D. Jesus dies in either 30 or 33 A.D. So we're talking first century. Uh, we have a a writer a few decades later, uh, a Jewish writer named Josephus. And Josephus talks about Jesus. He talks about his death under Pontius Pilate. Uh, and he talks about uh, the fact that his disciples, Jesus' disciples, keep worshiping him. And I don't know if you are aware of this. Jesus wasn't the first messianic character that marched into Jerusalem during Passover. It wasn't the first time that had happened. In fact, that tended to happen fairly often. In fact, uh, I can't remember which gospel writer mentions in Jewish history, guys would show up, they would collect a band of merry men, march into Jerusalem, swords in hand, on Passover, intending to sort of strike back at the Romans. Uh, and guess what always happened to them? They literally, die. yes. They're crucified. That's, that's what always happens. And when they're crucified, their followers go back home. They go back to their lives. They go back to their jobs. They just go home. And so what Josephus points out and what he thinks is a little shocking is the fact that Jesus' followers didn't go home. They kept worshiping Jesus, which is shocking to him. Uh, we have a writer named Tacitus, uh, who is a Roman historian, and he mentions uh, Jesus 
really sort of in passing when he's talking about Nero and how horrible the emperor Nero was. Uh, so Nero in the 60s AD, uh, by all accounts, started a fire in Rome. And the story goes that there was a plot of land in Rome that Nero thought was really neat, and he wanted to build his mansion. So what did Nero do? He just burned down the homes that were there. It's sort of like fucking cool, I guess. So everybody was mad at Nero. So what Nero did is he fastened the guilt on the Christians. This is the way Tacitus, this pagan Roman historian, describes it. Uh, And Tacitus, even though he hates Christians, he feels sympathy for them because uh, Nero actually set Christians up as uh, what we, what they called Roman candles. This is where we get kind of firework Roman candles. That comes back to Nero setting these Christians up, dousing them in kerosene essentially and lighting them on fire with his altar. So Tacitus writes about Christians and he writes that they worship, worship a character he calls Crispus, which would be a Latinization of Christians. Uh, we have another guy, a politician named Pliny who writes to the emperor at that time period, and he says, hey, what do I do with these Christians? They're gathering together. They're worshiping this guy as if he's a lord or if he's a god. Uh, what do we do with them? So there's tons of uh, historical resources that everybody outside this building, everybody at your college campus, whether it's MSU or Drury or wherever it would be, uh, they would all consider these as historical sources, even if they say the Bible is wrong or that it's So all that to say, there's another one, the Babylonian Talmud, which again is a Jewish resource, not Christian at all, and it talks about Jesus and the miracles that he did uh, and the fact that he, from their perspective, was inciting Israel to apostasy, which essentially gets ended up being the Bible. Uh, So all that to say, there are are tons of verses, resources. I tell my students, and I tell unbelievers all the time, the life of Jesus is the most historically verifiable fact that we have. So many manuscripts in the Bible. We have all these other historical documents. So whether you believe in Jesus is one thing or not is one thing, but you can't deny that he walked on water, that he died on the cross, that Pilate took him, and that it was at least recorded that he was buried. And then Christian historians are going to come alongside of that in uh, later years, and they're going to uh, rebut uh, Nero's um, plan and the accusation that Christians actually started the the fire in Rome. Augustine writes the book City of God as a refutation of Christians as being the ones to blame for the fall of the Roman Empire. And it's a really light read. It comes in unabridged at about a thousand pages. And so um, he writes and essentially refutes line by line, precept by precept, secular historians who try to take Roman events that led to the fall. You remember the fall of the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, you know, one of the great classics that everybody likes to quote, but nobody's actually read, um, and and say, here we go, line by line through kind of those secular historians and refutes them using guys like Josephus and others. And so you actually have Christian historians and theologians too that will come at later points in church history and go back and trace out all those arguments for you. So if you're the kind of person who likes to read the argument even after it's a little bit more developed, Augustine is great to read um, on these issues. Yeah, and even the early Christian historians like Augustine Martyr, yeah. really a lot of what they're fighting against is false views in the secular world of what the Christians were doing, right? Because have you ever thought about how bizarre our faith sounds sometimes, right? So we gather and we do this thing called communion where we eat the flesh of our Savior and drink his blood. Uh, in the early church, we know from uh, 1 Corinthians 11, they practice things called love feasts, which are kind of like fellowship suppers. So you've got this group of people who keeps meeting together at early hours in the morning, having love feasts, and they're practicing cannibalism, as far as I understand. So even the early guys are coming along going, hey, all the stuff these secular guys are writing about us, it's a little off, right? So let yeah. me set the record we're not, straight. We're not li- and, and this will be what early creeds and councils will gather and this is why church history matters because they're going to get together and they're going to, I mean, at some level, I mean, duke it out. I mean, you think of, uh, we, we celebrate, I, I love Christmas time because of Santa Claus, but for a completely different reason. Because supposedly 
at uh, one of the early church councils, um, St. Nicholas becomes so enraged at Arius for promoting a false theology of Christ that he actually punches him in the face in a council meeting. In the name of Jesus. Yeah. So next time you get shook and you feel like you need to throw hands, um, just think of the original St. Nick at the council going, you're not going to talk about Jesus that way. So church history is not boring. There's a lot of fun stuff that happens there. Is that why he wears the big gloves? I think so. Yeah, he's not to ready break to his knuckles or whatever? Probably not. <laughs> Probably to keep warm as he flies over the Arctic to deliver That's all right. the presents. With the reindeer, yeah. Yeah. It's the only game we know until the Vikings are actually shooting. Yeah. I heard it used on – I'd never heard it used yeah, in like a real real conversation. You were there. I was like surprised. I thought that was just a colloquialism that like joked around about. But I actually heard a student say, I was shook to a, one of her friends. I'm like, wow, death to the English language. Um, and yet here we are. Yeah, I'm just trying to be relevant, bro. I love it. So moving on to the topic of salvation. So we know um, we believe that once we are saved, um, we have eternal salvation in heaven. Um, that being said, how does one receive So they end up stepping away, so they deny the faith completely. It's not – let's start – let's stick with the, the, the topic. How does one who is saved not – what can they do? How, how does one who is saved call the others to repentance? Because even at the moment of faith, we can't repent of that judgment. Sure, because at some level, we're, we're still fallen humans who struggle with sin, and, and we're going to battle that. We know that from uh, – New Testament, I mean, I think it's the Apostle Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and things higher than us. So there's, there is a, a spiritual warfare that is legitimately going on. And then just our own, our old desires, they have a weird way of creeping back up and um, taking us down. And that's why, um, like, you think Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, the great sanctification section of the book of Romans, where Paul is instructing the Romans to, to put sin to death, to, to kill it. Uh, John Owen will come and write a famous book called Mortification of Sin, where he uses a lot of content from the book of Romans to encourage um, his readers to put sin to death. Um, and so Paul understands the, the, the wrestle because he even says at one point, the things that I uh, know that I should do, I don't do, and the things that I uh, want to do, I don't do them as well, um, and, and urges his uh, readers constantly to be in the business of putting sin to death. Now, in the case of someone who would walk away from the faith completely, I'd be interested to see what you think of this, but uh, I think we can legitimately say probably at some level that maybe, maybe they weren't genuinely converted. Because there are a lot of people who go through the motions of being a Christ follower. Um, you know, it's becoming more and more rare, I think, in our society because being a Christian has kind of lost a little bit of its um, societal um, weight. Um, you used to be a being part of a church was kind of how you made contacts. So you think about being a businessman or a businesswoman. Um, you go to your local church, whether it's Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Baptist. Who gives a rip? You're trying to sell insurance. So, but being understood as being like an a, an upstanding citizen who regularly attends church. And so at some point along the way, going through those motions, you begin to perceive that going through those motions is actually what saves you. And that's completely contrary to to what the scriptures would teach. So with the person who walks away from the faith, I'm more inclined to think that they weren't genuinely converted to begin with. Which, again, we can't look into their heart and make that particular judgment call. Yeah, very good. times we we want really nice clear-cut answers right was this person really saved was it not did they fall away did they not we want these very clear-cut answers so i want to start at the end and then work my way back in because let me let me just ask this question what is the solution to this problem well no matter where you fall the solution is the gospel does that make sense so whether they were truly a believer 
and they've just sort of stepped back and they're struggling with their faith, but they really are truly a believer, or they're someone who never was a believer and now they've shown their true colors, the answer is still the gospel. So, so I think it's worthwhile theologically, we don't have time to teach theology, so I think it's worthwhile to parse out these questions, but I just want to say on a practical level, the solution is the same regardless of what, what, what the middle layer is here. Uh, I, w- I would say, so let me just say this as clearly as I can. True salvation, by definition, matters. Uh, I think this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. of the household of God if we continue the confession that we're talking about here. So I I think if we're, this is sort of overly smoothing out all the rough edges of the scripture, but I think if we're to smooth it all out and put a systematic kind of phrase on it, true salvation by its very nature matters, okay? Um, So you've got a lot of different possibilities, right? I mean, one, Paul anticipates when he tells the Ephesians, hey, you better watch out because there are going to be wolves that come in among you. Now, I know we think we've arrived or something in the church and no longer do we have to wrestle with wolves, uh, but I think there are still wolves. So I think you have people who come in and intentionally deceive for a purpose. That's one possibility. Uh, A second possibility, you have someone who is like one of the three soils that Jesus describes in this parable that doesn't grow up into fruitfulness, right? So you've got the dry soil, you've got the one that Satan steals away, You've got the one that starts to sprout up, but then it withers when the cares of this life come through. So you've got all these kinds of situations where a seed seems to start to sprout, but then it, it's wiped out for whatever reason. So that'd be your, what I think you were getting at with, with people who never really were saved in the first place. And then you've got a category of people who uh, really are true believers. The seed has sprouted. They've had a time of fruitfulness, and then they just hit a hard patch. And uh, I I don't think you're ever going to see this person stand up and go, Jesus is not God. Jesus is not the source of salvation. I don't believe in the cross. I don't think you're going to see that person stand up. But if you do, I think you've got a whole different problem. But all that to say, you've got a lot of different scenarios where you could have someone who's in the church, who's worshiping with you day in and day out, who's even doing community with you, and then who steps back. Um, So whichever one of those scenarios it is, I think – at the end of the day, the solution remains the same, and it's a solution that we all need daily. By the way, the gospel isn't just for the people out there. It's for you every single day. How are you called into sanctification or in growing more holy or growing more like Christ? It's by realizing the gospel on a daily basis. So at the end of the day, the gospel remains the solution to whatever the actual problem is in your heart. I tend to take the perspective that I think the author of Hebrews does, which his perspective is, I'm a pastor, I am on the ground, I can't see into your heart, I can't see into your heart, I can't see into your heart. What I can do is look at the externals, and I can tell you, externally speaking, if you walk away and you tell me that Jesus is not the Lord, he is not your sacrifice for sin, then I can tell you, you should not have hope to spend eternity with him, because that's not something that a believing person is safe to experience. Um, So from a pastoral perspective, those are the signs we look for. But again, the solution remains the same. Just sticking with the topic of salvation. So a lot of the time, us as um, Protestants may think that we need to go get married and get a wedding ring and get married and get whatever it is. Whatever you think that we need to do to get married or whatever. But within that wedding ring, wedding ring is just a So um, Chuck Colson tried famously to start a group called uh, ECT, which is Evangelicals and Catholics Together. I'm very grateful for the post-conversion work of Chuck Colson. Um, He's an inspiration personally from just the different things that I like in my life, but I think it's probably one of the biggest mistakes he ever made in his life um, to suggest that evangelicals, Bible-believing confessing evangelicals, meaning we believe that salvation comes by faith alone, uh, uh, 
by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to Scripture alone, for all you five solo fans out there. Um, it's probably one of the worst things that ever happened inside of church history um, because of 501 years ago now, Martin Luther famously um, or infamously, I don't think he really understood what he was doing when he did it, but nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg um, and sparked the Protestant Reformation. In that moment, um, drew a clear line in the sand uh, between evangelical Protestants. There's a lot of work we could do there, but I'm just going to leave that alone, and Catholics. And so um, to the person who does not confess, because I will just say this, there are many denominations where their pastors will stand in the pulpit and declare that salvation alone belongs to the Lord and it is only available through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. And it is hit by his grace and for his glory that someone can come to saving faith. If that is what the church confesses, they are an orthodox biblical church. There are going to be doctrines that we're going to divide over, certainly. Um, Catholics do not believe that. Mormons do not believe that. They believe something completely different when it comes, Mormons specifically, when it comes to uh, grace and even the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, they will try and tell you that they believe the same things about Jesus, but they don't. Catholics believe in, I think, is it seven sacraments that are necessary for salvation? Um, and one of those is confession to a priest. Um, the Bible is very clear. Go back to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. We have a great high priest. We don't need to confess through a priest any longer. And theirs is a works-based salvation. This is the difference between evangelical Protestants confessing uh, what I've already said, uh, they believe that grace, faith, Christ, and, and the scriptures are necessary for salvation versus other religions who ne necessarily believe in works as salvific. So I think the question is, what do we say to those people? And the answer to that would be, you stand without hope and you need to come and submit to Christ as uh, ruler and Lord of your life. Um, that may be uncomfortable. Um, but to try to, maybe this is a good illustration. Like we really, as Americans, we love pluralism. We love the Burger King next to the Chinese restaurant next to, um, the tofu shack. We are all about that type of pluralistic melting pot society. And that's great culturally, but religiously it's terrible. And it sends people to hell because they genuinely believe themselves to be converted, even though the Bible has made it clear how they can be converted and the way that they're living is in opposition to the scriptures. That's a good word. Uh, one of the things that I really hammer in class is when we talk doctrinally, not all doctrines are equal in importance. So I give my students a fourfold scheme. I'm half tempted to call some up here and see if they can remember it. Frankly, I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm struggling to remember them all right now. Al Mohler's theological triage, just go with that. Well, so I know I've got four. So the top one is essentials. Uh, second one is dogma. Third one is, I think I call it tradition. And the fourth is preferences. So when we're talking about sort of, uh, is your belief system uh, orthodox or not? Are you, could, could we consider you Christian or not? You're talking the top of the food chain here and what I call essentials. So I think you have to, you know, you have to sit down and say, what are the essentials of the Christian faith? What's absolutely essential? And if you do not believe this, then I cannot consider you Christian. You are a Christian, non-Christian, heretic, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and so when it comes to, to that question, I mean, we have the solas, I think that David's talking about, uh, we have the deity of Christ, right? Which is where we get into problems with uh, Mormons, with Jehovah's Witness. Um, so you've got doctrines of salvation, you've got theological doctrines, Trinity, uh, who Jesus is. And, and so these are some of the things that are essential. So at that point, I can't simply gloss over them and go, oh, we're, we're all sort of, I mean, we all worship the same God, whatever. I, I can't do that when we're at the essentials level. Now, if we agree on the essentials and we get to dogma, and so you're you're sort of 
you think of baptism differently, like you're getting sprinkled or whatever, at least my understanding at that point, uh, I'm not considering you heretical per se. I'm going, we've got a major disagreement here, but at that top level of essentials, uh, I, I don't think we're in the same camp at that point. We disagree on the essentials, and we're, uh, we're talking about different things uh, outside of the camp. This is why it's really important to understand what groups you're affiliating with um, on your campuses. So looking for confessional statements and uh, statements of belief or um, things that would tell you what they confessionally believe is really, really important. Um, we go uh, once every other year uh, to, together for the gospel in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, we'll hear pastors from Reformed Church of America. Well, I don't even think we do anymore because Kevin DeYoung left the RCA because they began to ordain um, homosexuals and uh, women to the pastorate. And so that was a big landmark shift in the Reformed Church of America. But we'll hear from Presbyterian Church of America guys, Bible Church guys, Southern Baptists, um, Anglicans from time to time, maybe on a panel or something. But the thing that governs together for the gospel, and you can go to t4g.org and look at this, they have a list of affirmations and denials that if you are a confessing Christian, you should be able to check off the box on what they affirm and what they deny. Um, and that's huge. You know, sometimes it, you get involved in an organization and uh, they really want everybody to be together and we're not going to really talk about what we believe. And uh, doctrine's kind of this bad thing that kind of divides us. I read a quote online this week from MacArthur, of all people, not shocking on this issue, but he said, you know, people will often fault us and say, you know, doctrine's a bad thing, it, it divides. And MacArthur's response is, you're exactly right, doctrine does divide, it divides truth from error. And so we want to be people who understand what we believe, why we believe it, but also understand what we can compromise on and what we can't to work together for the sake of the gospel. Uh, we can partner with uh, Catholics and Mormons probably on pro-life issues. Um, I think we can all rally behind that and work together. But when it comes to um, a revival, um, if, if we're hosting the revival, um, Catholics are not going to be altar workers because their understanding of how someone would respond to a gospel message is going to be completely different than someone, say, from Spring Hill or from Crossway or even from High Street or Parkcrest or regardless of what type of Baptist or maybe even PCA church. Um, and that's the difference of just being a nerd and being okay with going and reading um, doctrinal statements on church websites. Um, if I don't know the pastor of something that I get asked to speak at, the first thing I do before I tell them yes or no is go to their website and find a doctrinal statement because um, I kind of want to know where I'm going. And I haven't been invited yet to a mainline Protestant where they like deny the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Still hoping for that invitation. I'm definitely taking it, but um, not because we agree, but because I'm just going to be like, here's the gospel. Um, so, yeah. That's a great question. I mean, really, the, the resurrection is the the pinnacle of, of our faith and the pinnacle of our uh, system. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to approach that question. I mean, uh, so if, if the questioner has in mind sort of, hey, did you know that science actually proves that people don't normally rise from the dead? And I would go, oh, absolutely, duh. Now, that's what science is designed to do. Science is designed to test things that are recurring events. It's designed to test what happens normally. The very nature of a miracle or a divine intervention is that it doesn't normally happen. Otherwise, it's not a miracle. Um, so certainly, you know, I personally have not seen someone rise from the dead thinking that, right? Um, so we go back to the first century, and we think through this issue. And, and I kind of touched on it already. 
uh, we did have lots of people that did what Jesus did, at least to the extent of marching into Jerusalem with their band of, of men with swords in hand and doing their thing. What never happened was that the disciples of those men stuck around after that person died. So the very fact that Christianity uh, remained, and in fact the early church was formed and developed the way that it did, historians have no way to explain. I mean, if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then the fact that 11 men and then a whole bunch of other people uh, came together and said, hey, let's worship this guy like he's alive. Let's worship him like he's a God. Because keep in mind, to us, we think of Jesus dying on the cross and we're like, oh, that's nice. I mean, we don't have a cross anymore because his cross is over. There's no crosses anymore. So We take the J.I. Packer approach and just kind of trying to keep it PG. All right. Uh, So... So all around this campus, I know because uh, somebody that showed me around one time was pointing out, we've got crosses everywhere. To us, crosses are, are very meaningful, spiritual, nice symbols. To them, a cross is the worst kind of death. It's the kind of death that criminals die. I mean, you just don't look at someone on a cross and go, oh man, you're calling that guy. That's not normal. So the very fact that not only did the early church form, and thrive, but the fact that these 11 men, history tells us that they gave their lives for their belief in Jesus. Now, the question is, if you are a disciple, about to stand up and start preaching, if you are a disciple, it's a Q&A, bro, you can't preach if <laughs> I, I get can't to preach, preach. Just wild west over here. Uh, if, if these men knew that it was a hoax, they stole the body from the grave just to trick everybody, what in the world is motivating live the lives that they do, to die the deaths that they died. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection is illegitimate, if it's not legit, then we are the worst fools, we are the most pitiable men on earth because we're giving our lives, we're giving everything for this. So the truth is, people don't give their lives for things that they know are fake and false and useless. So the very fact that these early men do what they do uh, the faith forms the way that it did. These people that walked around and saw Jesus uh, still continue to worship him, I think, is, is a huge uh, boost in the historical credibility of the resurrection. And then to couple, so the early first century, like you did, then to explain and extrapolate out even further, you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and historically speaking, this is a trend that continues to happen. Uh, people confess Christ and the emperor will put them to death or people will put them to death and continues really, I mean, it still continues to this day, but in different ways. Um, one only need to think of John Huss, who is burned at the stake and infamously says you can cook the goose because Huss it meant goose, but there's a swan that's going to come that's going to be brighter than all of you, which is why if you ever look at a painting of Martin Luther, you'll often notice in the background that there's a swan because the swan that... Huss refers to at is um, is Luther, because Luther comes behind him and starts the Protestant Reformation. So century after century after century, you see uh, people give their lives to follow something. I guarantee you, I, I really do, I think that's the strongest and most compelling argument is the testimony of 1 Corinthians 15. So Jesus, Paul says Jesus appeared to the the disciples, and then a crowd of 500, and then to me, last of all, born out three times. That eyewitness testimony is pretty strong. Probably what speaks even more, uh, speaks louder, is the fact that all of them will eventually, at some level, die for following after Christ. People typically, like there are some pretty rabid Chiefs fans in this room, but I don't, I know that there are some that would definitely not die. Because the minute anything starts to go bad, they turn on it. So um, the same thing is can be said true of any momentous group of people. There are very you have to be very convinced that this is worth dying for. And if you created a hoax or you stole the body, okay, I'm gonna be real honest with you. Yeah, we stole it. Please don't kill me. Am I smelling hamburgers or is this building yeah. on fire? Okay. The, the hamburgers are coming. We're I don't want to end up like a cooked goose like uh, Huss did. So well, I can so tell make you, sure we're okay. Uh, remind me, I'll tell you a story about that later. Okay. But it's not for you all. Just kidding. <laughs> well, they'll be bored by it. That's why. 
just thoroughly impressed that we that made it this far. I'm proud of us. I think we we should probably take a break right now. No, I didn't question think, two. Yeah, I, I didn't think too well. Start. I'm proud of us. Um, so how does one who has struggled with anxiety for all of their life, um, how does how are they able to do that? So there's a real big uh, shift okay. in question wise. Uh, not to make light of your question, because it's certainly true that people struggle with anxiety. Um, can you just read it one more time? It would be like your small group members. So, <laughs> how do you push away anxiety when you are faced with anxiety? Yeah. Um, so, I, I personally have never, I don't know that I have ever knowledgeably said I struggle with anxiety. Um, but I do know this that the Apostle Paul says that we are to cast all our burdens on the Lord because he cares for us. And yes, you may be anxious. And I know it might sound trite to say the Bible also says be anxious for nothing. Well, with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. And then he goes on to say, and let the peace of God rule your hearts and minds, which sounds really easy for maybe us to say up here to somebody who struggles with anxiety, but I think at some point in your life, you have to make the conscious decision that Christ is sufficient to handle all of those things, all of the struggles and cares of this world. And you're going to go through mountaintop and valley experiences all throughout your life as part of being a part of fallen humanity here on this earth. But the reality is the need to press into Christ. Because the gospel, if we go back to what Matt said earlier, the gospel is the core foundation for all of the Christian life. That means every day I'm reminding myself that I am a sinner in need of God's grace who cannot save myself. And it's only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection that I can experience any sort of hope in the future. So by constantly reminding yourself of... Um, the truthfulness of Christ and pressing into that reality, I think is how you're able to, I don't want to say overcome anxiety, because I think that sometimes we'll tell people just press into Christ and your troubles will just, just kind of melt away. We tell people this a lot of times in witnessing. We're like, just come to Jesus. Your life will be so much better. Everything will be easier. And then it's not. And they're like, what did you lie to me about? And so I don't want to suggest that you overcome anxiety, but um, definitely it is a warring against yeah, it. Yeah, you're, and that's part, I think, man, we we try and make sin like this thing that you just you kind of bow up against and you fight against for a little bit, and then it eventually goes away. Yeah, one day I decided I'm done with anxiety for now. Yeah, I grew up in that world of a, like the independent. So I didn't grow up in the SBC world. I grew up in the independent fundamental uh, Baptist world. Um, heavy emphasis on mental and not so much on fun. And guys would say often, like, uh, so I struggled with smoking, and one day I took the two packs of Marlboro Reds out of my front shirt pocket and threw them in the trash can. I never smoked again. And I'm thinking, I, I don't even have that struggle, but I know that if I smoke two packs a day, I definitely would not be able to pull that off. And so I think sometimes we, we tell people and set them up with a false expectation of how they can defeat sin. Uh, my favorite illustration specifically with smoking is R.C. Sproul because he famously or infamously struggled with smoking his entire life because he grew up in a generation where they thought that that was like good for your lungs. So smoked until almost until he died, which is part of what contributed to his health concerns. I mean, MacArthur famously said one time that he came and spoke at uh, their church and Sproul was standing out in the parking lot, finished smoking a cigarette, came in, borrowed somebody's Bible and taught. I mean, so there to suggest that whatever sin struggle you might have, that you are just going to be able, if you just press into Christ more and if you just um, do those things that the Bible verses say, that it's suddenly just going to magically evaporate. I, I don't want to set you up with that false hope. So that's why I'm not going to say you're going to overcome anxiety. I think if you war and you fight against sin long enough, it that effect is going to diminish to 
grow weaker and weaker and weaker. But I don't think we should ever look at a sin struggle and think, whip that one. That's good. Uh, I've struggled with anxiety all my life. Yeah, always have. Uh, it got really bad probably when was that? When my dad was diagnosed with cancer. It was over seven years ago. I was in ministry. I was leading Sunday school classes. Uh, there was about a month time period before I really understood what was going on inside of me that I would get to church and it would just flare up. And I, I mean, I just, I didn't even know what was going on. I was just like, I feel like I'm going to throw up all the time. I like, I'm literally shaking. What, what in the world is going on here? Uh, I remember basically being in tears in my office and my dad coming in and like, what's going on? Like, I can't go out there and just tell the band what to do with that. Uh, so I went to the doctor and just talked to them, and the truth is, uh, we live in bodies affected by the fall. I'm not sure if you're all aware of that. The older people in the room can amen. We, we occupy bodies affected by the fall. Uh, I imagine that each one of us has something that we are born with as a result of the fall that we struggle with more than the average person. So some people come from families where alcoholism is your background, and there's just something in you. It's not something I struggle with at all, but there's something in you that you struggle with that. I think there are people who are naturally just have a tendency to lie, and so they're more prone to it than others are. I, I think that's just an effect of the fall. Uh, so what do you do with that is the question, right? Just because you have a tendency towards something doesn't mean all of a sudden it's okay. That's, that's why, just to make a quick tangent, and I'm surprised we haven't got into questions about the big issue culturally of homosexuality. I know Christians debate back and forth, well, what if there's a homosexual thing and yada, yada, yada? I don't care. Just, just because you have a tendency or a predisposition towards something doesn't all of a sudden make it okay with that. So anyway, struggle with, with uh, anxiety. Uh, I, I am, am married to a wonderful and brilliant uh, medical practitioner. Uh, I do think there are chemical things that can go on, uh, and so so, so I got on medicine, right? I don't know if you know Myolab and stuff like that. I, is it okay to say that? Okay. I don't work here, so it's okay. No, okay. I'm just kidding. Yeah, it's fine. I'm <laughs> just kidding. It's just being recorded. Uh, so I got on medicine and just let that help me, uh, and I didn't have to uh, was it, didn't have to stay on it forever or whatever, but it helped to kind of reset things, but along with that natural tendency, there are sin issues. On the way over, my wife said, are you nervous? And I said, yeah, I'm a little nervous, but to be honest with you, it's just my pride. Uh, what do I have to lose? I don't work here, right? So it's just a matter of, it's, it's true. Just a, it's just a matter of what do either. you think of me? And that's pride, that that's what I'm concerned for. So that is a sin issue, and that's something that I have to confront. Uh, there are times of real worry, and it, all it is is me trying to take control back from God, and that's a sin issue. And so I've got to go into Scripture and and see what Scripture says about that and address that. Uh, there are times when I could just name a million examples. So there's plenty of sin issues associated with it. I would say this. Uh, if you need to seek out medical help, seek out medical help. Medical doesn't solve everything when it comes to anxiety, but it can be a, a tool to help you begin to get into Scripture, to think through things. Here's the other thing I want to say. So I think this is third. tendency in evangelical life toward rugged individualism. Even our spiritual disciplines have become all about, oops, I sit in my room by myself and read my Bible. I sit in my room by myself and pray. I sit in my room by myself and fast. Everything is me doing it on my own. And I'm just telling you, if you read the New Testament carefully, that's not the way it was designed to work. Not to say that you don't read your Bible by yourself. I'm not saying that. Um, but what I'm saying is, we have to help one another. This is one of the primary messages of the Hebrews warning passages. Come together as a community. Exhort one another daily in order to keep bad stuff from happening. So if you are out of community, if you're struggling with anxiety and you're keeping it into yourself, you're not telling those around you, you're not seeking for them to pray for you, to encourage you. I mean, the greatest thing that ever happened was I told my wife, which is super embarrassing. But I told her. And having community, I told my life group, I told uh, the people that I serve with on staff, this is what's going on with me. I'm embarrassed to say it, honestly, because of my pride, but this is the reality. So, so number one, 
talk to your doctor. Number two, uh, seek out scripture and, and memorize verses that are helpful. And number three, live in Christian community because you can't do it by yourself. And I would just tack on and we'll take one more question after this too. We both come from a, we both teach at a school. I don't know where um, Philip teaches right now. He doesn't. We both teach at a school that has a very um, strong understanding and basis for biblical counseling. And our belief is this, that um, the body has chemical imbalances that can be helped by a doctor. But if there is no chemical imbalance, just prescribing medication is not going to fix the problem because medication can't address a heart problem. That is um, one of the things that we would uh, strongly suggest. If you struggle with anxiety, you go see a doctor and the doctor's like, I can't find anything physically wrong, but if you're experiencing these things, I'm going to give you this, 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 and this medication. Um, I would just strongly counsel you to hold off from taking that medicine. Um, Unless the doctor is telling you that there's something physically wrong with you, then you need to take that medicine. So don't hear this and be like, well, you said there was a chemical imbalance, but Bob said don't take it. No, I did not. I'm not a licensed medical professional, so I did not tell you that. Yeah, I'm not going to go to court for that. So, um, but there is a sense in which we are a prescription-friendly society, meaning we think that drugs can fix a lot of things that Scripture tells us the only thing that can fix the human heart is the Word of God. And so I would just strongly encourage you to understand um, where that needs to be rooted. So, Luda, you want to give us our last question? We'll wrap up for tonight. Yeah, so the last question was uh, talking about the difference between uh, the church today and the church uh, back in the day, back in the day. So um, we look at the church today, and there's a lot of common problems that we've run into. And so what exactly is the difference between the early church and the church today? So the church today is kind of what? Spiritual gifts and how um, God manifested his presence in the midst of the church and how he um, inspired and fostered the church back in the day. century Bible guy. Tell us what's changed. Okay. Um, So read through the the Old Testament. Let's start there. Uh, There are critical times in what we sometimes call salvation history. In other words, there are these big momentous occasions when God is doing something very special and particular to rescue his people. So, classroom, can you think of a time in the Old Testament when God does something crazy and miraculous to rescue his people? Okay, so the parting of the Red Sea, the plagues, uh, God's doing something big, miraculous. Uh, Moses sees a burning bush. Uh, So, then you go on, and we have manna, and certainly that's miraculous, but we're not seeing constant miracles, right? Well, then we come to Joshua's time period to enter the Promised Land. And guess what God does? He doesn't part the Red Sea. What does he part? There's a body of water. Anybody? Yeah, the Jordan River. So uh, let's fast forward on to the king's period. We've got Elijah and Elisha. There's something very critical going on where really the people of God are at risk in a way. And so these guys come in and they're doing these miraculous things. I mean, even kind of anticipating the types of miracles Jesus would do. So I would say from a biblical perspective, a biblical history perspective, uh, you could say that the, the miraculous Uh, unexpected, extraordinary type things tend to blow up around critical times when God's rescuing people. With me so far? Good. Uh, So let's fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus shows up. He's doing all these incredible, miraculous things. Uh, He leaves. He sends the Holy Spirit. uh, And all these miraculous things start happening, including tongues, including healing people. I mean, people are touching Paul's cloak and being healed, right? Uh, In Hebrews chapter 2, it talks about the fact that Jesus spoke the gospel to those who followed him, and then they brought it to the audience of Hebrews. So they're, we call them second-generation Christians. But in Hebrews 2.4, it says that God confirmed their sharing of the gospel with signs and wonders and various allotments of the Holy Spirit. In other words, crazy, dramatic, miraculous things are taking place to affirm the gospel. All right? So... The question is then, what is the difference between our our time period and theirs? Uh, I think that there's a collection of miraculous things like tongues, uh, like 
miraculous healings that a person is, is the conduit for, that's taking place in the cer- first century to confirm the message of the gospel. Uh, from that time period on, uh, we're not seeing them like we saw them then. And I think that's because we end up with the scriptures, we have the witness of the church, uh, we have all these things that are confirming the truth of the gospel. So I look at it from sort of a, what we call a salvation historical perspective and say, miracles collect these critical times when things are changing and God is initiating redemption for his people. Yeah, and then I couple that with um, the witness of church history specifically. Um, you can't live in Springfield for any length of time and be a pastor or a theologian without eventually talking about sign gifts. Um, the headquarters of the Assembly of God is here. Um, obviously, we have some major theological differences, and specifically on the issue of sign gifts, speaking in tongues, healing, prophecy, all of those different things. Um, I think that you're exactly right with salvation history, the close of the canon, and then you said the witness of the church. Well, the witness of the church is that for about 2,000 years, roughly, from the close of the canon until about the 1905 with Amy Trimble McPherson and the Azusa Street Revival that takes place in the West Coast, um, there is no historical theological evidence for speaking in tongues or healing. It just is non-existent. So for two, almost 2,000 years of church history, um, none of the fathers, none of the reformers, none of the early patristic fathers, late patristic fathers, then we get to early medieval period, then we'll get to the reformers, then the post-reformers, and then even into the evangelical movement and the neo-evangelical movement bleeds into that the church is church history is completely silent theologically on the issue of um, speaking in tongues, healing, miraculous sign gifts as being in operation until uh, 1904 and Amy Simple McPherson and a couple other um, miraculous supposed things that take place there. And you can, um, yeah, you can do a whole lot of study on that just and who Amy Simple McPherson is, um, which is not really fair because we have to do that to our own historical figures. We need to be able to notice their blind spots and faults. Um, But there's this long period of silence where there's no activity taking place. And then with the birth of Pentecostalism, the oneness holiness movement, and at some level, the Assemblies of God movement, um, the revival of sign gifts takes place. Um, interestingly enough, and, and not to close like on this note, but interestingly enough, this is one of um, the uh, atheists' big hang-ups when it comes to religion. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but um, it is very commonplace um, knowledge inside of um, the atheist movement um, that the, the whole practice of speaking in tongues is kind of like, well, that's evidence that religion is a farce and uh, because those people aren't actually speaking. Yeah, what's that Jesus Camp? You remember that little documentary came yeah, out on that about training yeah. kids to speak in tongues. Yeah, and so because of that, um, really at some level, the and I don't, I don't want to say faking because I think those people genuinely believe themselves to be performing miraculous gifts. Um, because of that, um, really certain atheistic groups have latched onto that as evidence for not believing in God and uh, religion as false because they send linguists into these places under cover um, to sit through these things and to listen to people speaking in tongues and are like, that's not a recognizable language. All of the requirements that the New Testament gives for evidence of speaking in tongues. And here's what's also funny about this. They also like have read the scripture passages so that they know what the proper practice for speaking in tongues is. And then they identify how the, the new church is not abiding by those rules. And so sometimes we think that atheists and agnostics and skeptics don't know the Bible. Um, they actually spend probably at some level more time reading it than even people who are genuinely familiar with it. So um, that's one of the major things to couple with your wonderful explanation is the silence of church history. Um, if those gifts were in operation, surely given the amount of writing that takes place, especially by the reformers and post-reformers and even the early patristic fathers, we would have had record of these things. 
though. Yeah, and I would add that Paul, uh, so 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, if anyone does want to look at love chapter, is about spiritual gifts. Love chapter that we read at weddings is really about spiritual gifts introduced in the church. Because uh, Paul starts out, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm just a noise. If I want to go sit here at my friend's place, no one, no one pays to go to that concert. Uh, but Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, his principle that he lines out, so he's not denying tongues for their congregation, but the principle he lines out is this. I'd rather stand up and speak 10 sensible words to you than a million in tongues. So even when they're dealing with tongues, and I think to affirm the, the only witness of the gospel, Paul still says, don't long for that. Don't long for that gift. Long to actually edify one another. That's what it looks like when we come together. And I hope that's the purpose of for you all this time that we've had. We'd rather stand up here for 30 or 45 or however long it's been minutes try to edify you with reasonable words than to stand up here and jump around and do something dramatic and not edify you. So when we gather, the point is edification. And Paul knew that all the way back in Corinthians 14. Yeah, that's a good word. Thanks for listening to the Crave College Ministry Sermons from Crossway Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. For more information about Crave, you can connect with us online at crosswaybc.org forward slash college or on social media at Crossway Crave. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you have a great day.